Okay, tonight we're going to do it on the concept of distinctions. And so it feels like that the Lord just keeps speaking to me about the idea that things are being drawn a line of distinction like never before. And so the parable that I probably most dislike in the Bible is Matthew 13, 24 through 30, as far as it. It's the problem of good and evil, of how it affects us right now. And it's a parable of no distinctions. And the fact that there's not any clear distinctions, or at least where you could draw that line really close, is what kind of makes this parable really frustrating. And it talks about that there's lots of trouble in the coexistence. These things coexist, like the wheat and the tares coexist. The bad and the good. The coexistence of something that is beneficial with something not so good. And you don't want your life having a lot of this in it where there's both sides there. You know, the beneficial and the not so good in your life. And so this parable, it talks about the dilemma of it. It's not the way God wanted it. It's the problem of good and evil. It's the coexistence of the sheep with the wolves. You know, if you're a farmer, putting the sheep and the wolves in the same pen is not a good idea. And a lot of times, the uh, wolves go to church to be with the sheep. <laughs> and so, <laughs> it's a problem. <laughs> you pastor. That's why David says, the Lord makes a table for me in the presence of my enemy. So that in the midst of trouble or in the midst of your enemies, there's a table made for you. So in Matthew 13, 24 through 30 is a story and really the story of a dirty little trick. If you think about it, it's like something just really disturbing took place in this story. And it reminds me of something that Andrea told me. Now, I hope you appreciate it. Andrea was just cute as could be. I mean, when she giggled, I mean, she was so cute she was such a stinker pot. And she designed the front of the trust book. And, you know, it was Chris John's girlfriend. And he got himself a mail-order bride. And so she was telling me stories, you know, while we worked together. But Andrea's story was her dad and her uncle of something happened when she was four years of age. And she would just laugh and laugh when she would tell me these stories. But it was a brother to a brother-in-law. And Andrea's uncle, Mike, was a really big guy. He was tough. He was rough. But he was also a very good chef. He was a cook. And he was very passionate about his cooking. And so he had a little salsa garden. And this little salsa garden was where he grew all what he needed. He worked and worked on this little garden. Well, in it, he had a tomato that he would watch grow every day and ripen. And he was, I mean, watching the size of that tomato. And he'd just talk and talk and talk about that tomato. And so it got really big, and he was waiting for it to turn just that perfect color of red and very juicy. Well, Andrea's dad, he waited to strike. And about that time, Andrea's dad told her to go over to her uncle's house and told little Andrea, pick his tomato. <laughs> so as a four-year-old, this makes an impression on you when someone uses you to do the dirty. And so she goes over to her uncle's house and she picks the tomato right before it was ready. He instructed Andrea, now run in and tell your uncle, look what I got for you. I'm sure the uncle couldn't beat a child, but anyway, she picked it just like her daddy told her to, and she ran in and take it to him. When she did, the uncle was so mad. I mean, he was just infuriated, but he couldn't do anything because she was so little. And they said that Mike got as red in the face as the tomato should have been. I mean, his face was just bursting with red because he was so mad, and he wanted to lash out. But Jose, Andrea's dad, had got his brother-in-law, and oh, he would just laugh and laugh. And Andrea's dad, he would tell that story. In fact, she said he's still laughing about it to this day. And when I heard that story, I wrote it beside this parable because that's the point. That it reminds you of what happened in this. Enemy has done this. You know, that's what it says in the parable. You know, you wake up, you planted a nice crop, and somebody has planted sticker grass right in the middle of your crop. And there's not hardly anything you can do about it. And so an enemy has done this. It messed up the crop that you were waiting for. And it's disturbing. And that's exactly what Andrea's dad had her do, was just mess the guy's 
crop up after all that waiting. And there's nothing like growing something for a long time and then it just turning out wrong. So in verses 36 through 43, it gives you the explanation of the parable. I like those where Jesus tells a parable, but then later he actually explains to us what's going to take place. And so it's really addressed to those people that are eager to pull up the weeds. But he gives you a warning. It says, yeah, everybody's all for killing the bad guys. That's the fantasy thought of everybody. Of Let's just get rid of the bad guys. But it warns you that there's a problem that will take place when you try to pull the evil people out. Or try to get up the people that are giving trouble. Or rid your group of the person causing the problems. I mean, if you've ever pastored, this is a very difficult thing to handle. And so Jesus puts it in terms of wheat and tares. Knocking them off. And he said you can't do it. Because he said the problem is when you throw one out, three good ones will leave with them. And so you pull up some wheat. So it's an interesting reason. I was thinking about it. He doesn't express any concern about the tares. Like there's no love lost there. You realize that the wheat represents people and the tares represent people. But you don't see him expressing any concern about the bad. He doesn't seem to express any kind of a feeling for them. But he does express the fact that he does not want to lose any wheat. And basically it's like, I don't want to damage an innocent bystander. You know, these bystanders will accidentally get harmed because they're not understanding what's going on. So in Matthew 15, 13, it says, they will be plucked up the things that I didn't plant. So God has some people that he didn't plant in a place and they plant themselves and God didn't plant them. And he said, that's the problem is there's people that God didn't plant. And that's why sometimes it's like you don't feel their fit. It doesn't bring a strength to it. And actually it wasn't intended that way because everything God planted was good. It would have been a great harvest. But then in comes an enemy and they sow that evil seed it's just some things out there that God didn't do. Now this is a great parable for those who think that everything that happens in your life happened because God wanted it to. This parable right here shows that's not true. There's some seeds planted in your life that God didn't do. There's some things that have happened to you that God didn't cause. There's some tears that have grown. And so what is promised in this parable that is good that redeems it, that it promises in the end there will be a distinction made. And the angels will do the work of separating the two out. So the concern was not to hurt the good with the bad. That was the concern of the parable, was don't hurt the good seed, don't hurt the good plants, don't hurt the harvest with trying to get rid of the bad. And everybody has met this dilemma to this day. So that is a great understanding of Jesus explaining to you the distinction, but at times how very difficult it is to untangle it. So right here, Jesus has explained to you why he's taken so long to separate these two groups out. This is Jesus' explanation for telling you why that the good seems to have the bad people prospering right along beside them. And he's giving you an insider's look at exactly what takes place and the difficulty and the dilemma. You know, basically he's saying to you, it's real easy for you to be mad about it and chomping around and saying, oh man, these people shouldn't be here. Or, you know, why are these evil people in the church? We had a lot of people get up and leave church because they were angry that this girl was in church stealing purses and Bibles. And she was making her rounds to three of the major churches in Brownwood, stealing them. And they said, see, there's hypocrites here. Well, they haven't read this parable and studied it to know the hypocrites have planted themselves. The people that live double standards, the bad tares, there's some self-plants among us. And so I love the fact that Jesus gives us a look from his perspective of why it's a difficulty what we're asking to have done. We just, we want a magic wand where we snap our fingers and it's gone. We don't take any responsibility for how the world fell under our care. And so it has caused this. So that's the way that I wanted to start the understanding of this very delicate operation, this very delicate surgery 
will take plans with the hands of the Lord, with this expert surgeon. And so this distinction is very unique. As we get to the end, we're getting closer to the surgery day. As we get to the end, something's transpiring or taking place. I'm going to tell you something that's interesting. The distinctions and the for and against category. Now, that's another Bible study, another time when we talk about Jesus issuing two statements about being for him or being against him. And it's understandable those that are for him or the good seed, those that are against him or the bad seed. But he says something very unusual in Mark 9.40. And he brings up a class of people that normally Jesus doesn't bring up. And it's the class of middle ground. And you don't have the Lord bring up middle ground very often. But he makes this category and he says, He that is not against me is for me. He gives a relatability there. Now he says it a different way at another point, and it's in the same context. So I one time spent hours studying this concept. I remember my dad tell me, Edgy, this is really good. He goes, I, I can't believe that you put this together, the two concepts, because you've got to have both working in your life. But now I'm going to take it to another place, and I'm going to shoot an arrow through it, and we're going to talk about what the time of distinction is doing to the middle ground. The middle ground is contested distinctions. And so we're going to contrast something that's pretty inclusive here, where he said, if you're not completely against me, you're for me. Now, a lot of times working among great evil, you've got to partner with people that are not against the Lord or the kingdom. Like I work a lot of times with this crowd. They're not exactly for the Lord, but they're not against him. And sometimes I can get a lot done working with a crowd that's not against the Lord. Like they don't seem to know enough. I felt like that a lot of the patriotism and a lot of the just solid rock, rock solid people in America are this crowd. They're not for the Lord. And so people would really challenge and say, well, why would you have someone in leadership that's not exactly for the Lord? But Jesus actually said, if they're not against me, they're for me. It's a, it's a very interesting way that he had it. But if they're against him, they're really against him. And you find people that are really against the Lord. And those people are apparent today. You don't have to you know, try to rack your brain to figure out who really is against the Lord. People are, are very vocal when they're against God now. So it's unique of having a group that Jesus takes in that most of the time we don't ever discuss among Christians that it's this group that if you're not against me, you're for me. And a lot can be done with that. A lot can be worked through with that. It's a more inclusive group. But I want to contrast for a minute the concept of he that's not against me in relationship or versus the idea that because you are lukewarm and you're neither for or against, hot or cold, I'm about to vomit you or spit you out of my mouth. And that's Revelation 3, verse 15. Do you see what I'm seeing? That as we get closer to the end, it's more distinct. You're seeing the middle ground here that the Lord says, I want my milk hot or cold. I don't want it sitting down on the counter. I want something from you that gives me some kind of a temperature to you. I want something that has some kind of push or pizzazz to you. So you see here that these people that are playing it as close to the line as they can, the people that are lukewarm, they're noncommittal. You know, whoever's leader, I'll, I have a foot in both camp. I can work with either side. You have this thing where people are not staying true to convictions or strength, and you're seeing something here where they've gotten away with this for a long time of being able to live in this area where they don't have to commit to either side. And there's actually a pride to them in it. There's actually, they pride themselves that they're not to the extreme either way. They're not paying attention to what Scripture's telling them. They're not paying attention to the Spirit of God where he's saying, if I had my rathers, I would rather you be one way or the other. Because it makes him nauseous to the point of 
throwing you out. Like it's like Jonah being vomited up on the beach. I mean, your non-committal is getting you vomited up on the beach. And so I see this with the Lord that the for and against crowd is now being forced. The ones that are not against him is now being forced to make a decision. Are you seeing that now? It's kind of like the earth is splitting beneath them. Like there's a great earthquake and it's happening right underneath their legs. And they're going to have to jump one way or the other. And sometimes I think it surprises themselves which way they jump. Because they really haven't thought it through enough to know if it really came down to it and pressure was applied to them, whose side would they be on? And I think that's what God's saying to us. I am the captain of the host of the armies of the living God. Whose side are you on? And I think as we're drawing closer to the end, there's this gigantic earthquake happening that if you haven't made up your mind yet, I'm telling you, you're going to have to make a quick jump at some point. It's going to separate out. So the distinction line is being drawn very clear here. So, as we move towards this, I hear the return of the distinctions. In fact, I even see the Lord addressing this issue in Malachi. Now, Malachi is how our book ends. It's a very strong book, and it's dealing with distinctions of all things. It's dealing a lot with people who act like they are followers of God, but not living like it. You know, he says that wild statement, Will a man rob God? Now, that's an audacious statement. That's pretty preposterous. Honestly, have you ever thought of it? Can you rob God? I mean, I didn't think God was robbable. So Malachi is talking about the type of people that are playing games with God. They're manipulating, if you want to say it that way. And so this place is coming that in Malachi verse 3, it's addressing it. It says, on the day when I act. Now, these are some interesting concepts. We can break them down for a minute. But verse 5 says, I will bring judgment against this people. And he makes a list of all types of people. Like Revelation will make a list of all these sordid types of souls. And he makes a list of all these. I will bring judgment against these people. And he makes his list. I put a dash there. And he says, that don't fear the Lord. I will bring judgment against... These types that don't fear the Lord. The problem is you're being passive with God. Like there's no real fear of Him. You can read scriptures. They don't touch your heart. You can feel that hot fire where the Lord's trying to warm you up to Him. And It's something where the fear of the Lord has no effect on you. And that's what it says in verse 5. So as the prophet works on down in verse 17... The Lord says, on the day when I act, says the Lord God Almighty. Now, the way that it says on the day I act, it's like there's a specific point on the calendar where God puts his finger. And he says, on the day, like it's going to be very quick and very specific. In verse 18, it says, and you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked between those who serve God and those who do not. And you shall turn and then again discern the difference. Because the prophet said everyone is mocking, everybody's upset. They're saying, well, it doesn't seem to do us any good to serve God. I've seen people that don't serve God that they have it every bit as good as I do. And he said, but on that day when I act, it's like the guillotine falling down you will see a distinction. And it will show you the difference between the righteous and the wicked. It'll show you the difference between those who serve God and those who do not, those who obey Him and those who do not. There is supposed to be a distinction and it's not supposed to be blurred. And because of the complexities of how we do life together among those who are wheat and tares, because of the ingrowth of the roots and the way the plants go together, because one would pull up the other, because a tear's not going to go out of here without screaming. 
They're going to make a mess. They're going to try to wreck everyone around them. Because of that issue that they have the ability to sway someone, God, because of his love for the good, cannot deal with the bad. But he said, on that day when I act. So you see that movement towards the lukewarm being dealt with. Between it's being taught, that it's being taken to the point in history where it's, it's right there at that moment that this decision's about to be made. It says, you that now speak against God as making no difference between the good and bad, therefore say, it's just vain to serving. Verse 14, you shall be made to see your error. That there will be one event that changes this. That's where we are. And at that point, it's either this or that. There's two groups. The true colors, the heart motives. Does serving God make a difference? And the prophet says, there is a book of remembrance being written before God. So, the distinctions between people. We're going to be studying Passover. Jesus celebrated Passover with his disciples. And even Passover is a time of distinction. Passover, you know, often it corresponds with our ordinance of actually taking communion. And in communion, there's a distinction. Like, you don't do it unworthily. You don't take communion without understanding the price of it. Passover had that price. And so Passover is not just this gleeful celebration of, oh, God's so happy with you. It's just, it's just good all the way around, you know. That's not what you get out of Passover. That's not, that's not how Passover looks. This is not just a, a celebration to enter into lightly and just say, I can just do anything I please. But the distinction of uh, Passover has to do with God and His promises. It actually is your standing with the Lord and also your protection. And I'm going to call this distinction that we're looking at the bloodline distinction. As the days grow dark, the times are difficult. I would say what we're about to step into right here in Scripture is very important. Because you must be able to do this well. Because what's coming on the earth, you want to make sure that shield is your body shape. (laughs) That's the guy on the Dunkirk beach when he was strafed with the bullets, that his shield that God had over him was exactly the shape of his body. You want that. That you climb into that. So this distinction of your walk with God and his promise comes out of Exodus 11 and Exodus 12. We shall say that in verse 7 is where we're going to put our finger down first in Exodus 11, 7. That the reason for the plagues... The Passover, the whole concept is the Lord said, I had Passover for the very reason of this, this Bible study. I did Passover to draw a distinction. I don't ever hear anyone say those words. I mean, that's what caught my attention when I was studying distinction was in verse 7. It says, the Lord doth put a difference between the Egyptian and Israel. That is the reason I do this, to show you there's a difference. The difference that makes no difference is no difference at all, as my philosophy pastor said. The distinction. This is where you want there to be a clear distinction over your life. And that's the purpose of Passover. It's the purpose of drawing a distinction. What is taking place in verse 9 There's plagues that devastated everything and everyone except for the Hebrew believers. There was a distinction. God wanted them to see the difference. That God is drawing a distinction. And as the plagues come on the world and they're beating down, the distinction once again is drawn. You know, I look at Moses and he didn't, as a leader, take a personal thing of saying, I want it, 
you know, this just to go inward with me, you know, just to cover my house, and I'm not going to tell anyone else. But he broadened it out, and he said, God is offering you this ability to have the distinction drawn over the top of you. And so it's very important that you come into that of realizing what causes the distinction. So in Exodus 12, 43 through 49, it's the Passover. Now, I'm going to say it this way to you. Foreigners are excluded from Passover. Foreigners are included in Passover. <laughs> it's in this passage that tells you how it works. Because of this distinction. It's, they had to become one of them. They couldn't come in the house just because they wanted to. There's a lot of people that want to eat at the trough of the goodness of God. But they can't do it just because they want to. It takes a high level of agreement and commitment. They couldn't celebrate unless they picked up the family values. That's why there's a requirement on the end of the person participating. That's why people go, well, in the name of this culture, well, just everybody should be accepted. Why? Well, that's Christianity. We're all God's children. There's distinctions. And this distinction is put in place. The outside values have to change in order to match the godly values. The outside heart has to change to match the godly heart. And he's saying not so lightly here. And he begins to explain it, that no foreigner is to eat of it. No foreigner. Even your slaves that you purchased. They can't eat of it unless one thing takes place with your slave. Like, you're going to have a distinction in your house where the children eat the bread, but the slaves are not allowed to. Why? What has to take place? It is not just a meal of, I'm hungry so I get to eat. I'm hungry because we're fixing to leave and I'm going to need the nourishment and the strength for the journey. The distinction is, wow, this is a prostate. You have to be circumcised to eat this dinner. And if you think circumcision in the Old Testament is something, it's even more when you consider what circumcision means of the heart. We're cutting away of the flesh of the heart. So, after you have circumcised them, do you understand what that means? They're saying blood. You have to bleed for this. There's a price here. Then they may eat of it. A sojourner, someone passing through, a hard servant, shall not eat of it. So they deal with both the slave and they deal with the one that's a hard servant, a hireling. All of the congregation of Israel is to celebrate. But if the stranger sojourns with you and celebrates the Passover of the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. This is a permanent commitment. <laughs> This is nothing that can ever be undone. So it spends as much time talking about how other people can join in and the requirements for them to make you understand what it takes from you to be able to participate. And then let him come near to celebrate it and he shall be like the native of the land. But no uncircumcised person may eat of this. And the same law shall apply to the native as to the stranger who sojourns among you. A one-time meal has to have a permanent commitment. Eating once, this is required. All you want to do is eat one meal, join the family, but it makes a complete dedication of your life to God. Continued obedience. It shows you how significant this celebration is. It must do something in the spiritual realm. Circumcision of the heart, a heart change, Covenant meal is like communion with the Lord. How this distinction works. The Lord drew the line. We must enforce it. <laughs> He's telling you, you enforce this. A distinction in individuals. The plague and the protection. This is about protection. You know, in Exodus 4.22... There's a lot of commentary around this, but I'm going to take this position. This shows you how slow God was to wrath. 
that the plague was first threatened. This plague of where the firstborn is killed was first threatened but was the last to be executed. Do you know what I mean? Like, it wasn't a graduation. It didn't start with the, you know, all the little blood, frog, loss, and work up. Actually, you can pull the verse to Exodus 4.22 before it all starts in, in chapter 6. That, I don't, let's see if I can put this into words for you. This shows you God's slow to wrath. Because he tells you first, this is going to end with the death of something, or the death of the firstborn. He warns you ahead of time because he's full of mercy. This is a picture of the end times. It took us a long time getting here. This distinction took a long time. What the horrors of the end time, the tribulation, the all these things that, that must go down. God's been patient in His mercy. And He's taken a lot of time till we got here in history. Like He said, and on that day. That there is a day. The plague was the first threatened, but the last executed. The plague was the first threatened, but the last executed. Mercy. That he threw it out there first. Think about that in your life. God, he said it just clearly. Sell out, sell out, sell out. Sell out. And then he runs you through nine things to show you. I'm not lying to you. Like, it happens every time I say it. Like, I'm proving to you that I'm not talking lightly to you. This is not one of those threats where... Mom and Dad says, one, two, three, you're going to get a busting, and then they really don't give it to you. He's letting you know this distinction really is coming for us. And so it is of the end times. It's been a long time getting here, but this warning has been in Scripture for a long time. This was the final plague. This is the one that he slowed to death, to wrath, the final one, the finality of death. You know, it was once quipped. The death rate is still one per person. <laughs> so, in Exodus 11, verse 5, in Egypt, there was no distinctions. Do you see the difference? Among the unbelievers, there is no distinction. In Egypt, same, same. Everyone's treated the same. Unbelievers, same, same. The death angel will visit everyone. The smallest hut, the grandest palace, the poorest of poor, the richest of rich, the educated and the uneducated. No one is too high to be reached or too low to be touched. They couldn't find anything within Egypt to make a distinction over, to make a difference over. When you look through the unbelievers, there's not any way to draw a line, to distinguish between them. There's nowhere to hide. There's nowhere to get out of reach. So, bring this forward, and the world doesn't make distinctions but believers do. That's why you're hearing the message of the world that it's a global voice. It's a politically correct voice. It's a voice of, if you're Egyptian, there's no distinction. You're seeing the same as this guy's seeing. It's all one big mess. And when the enemy makes a distinction, it's not for good. Let me put it to you in this words. When you find a line taking a good long look at you, if there's, a, <laughs> if there's a, a lot of people around you and the lion looks at you for a long time, it's not a good thing. But with the world, the death angel came and he made no distinctions. That's why they have the philosophy that it's all one big family. That There's no way that I could be in trouble with God because, look, there's so many just like me. 
Like, I know I'm not going to get judged for this because so many other people are doing this too. Like, there's no way God could get rid of all of us. They're preaching something of no distinctions. But you saw the very act of God on the Passover having it as a land of distinction. That's exactly what the land of Goshen was. And y'all, it's so specific. It's so peculiar to this group. Exodus 11:7 is the verse that really excited me on it because it caught my attention in a way that nothing else has about protection. It's an oddity of all the ways to express the difference. This is so unique in verse 7. But it says, But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any man or any animal. As the death angel goes over, not even a dog will bark at a man or an animal. And then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. This is your psalm. It's going to be so quiet in the land of God's people that not even a dog will bark that night. A distinction in nations, in borders. This is a prophecy of a dog not barking at anyone or anything. This is the difference. This is the contrast. This is what's on the different sides of the scales. It's saying there's going to be peace and protection in their land versus the crying out and screaming of pain and grief in the other. Where there's no barking here, there's going to be howling of pain as the death angel comes upon the animals and the people of all walks of life as they see their firstborn dead. It wasn't a die in their sleep. It was a strike down and it's weeping and screaming and gnashing and wailing. It's a land of distinction. That's what we're celebrating with Passover. His distinctions. The protection. Exodus 12, 3 and 5. This is a picture of the whole world and what is going on. And it is now a world of chaos and of pain and heartache and grief and twistedness and unfairness. But inside, there is a land. It's like the eye of the hurricane where the people were eating a meal of roast lamb, bitter herbs, and bread made without yeast inside. The bitter herbs representing slavery. And so they had a diet there that the bread could have no yeast. The bitter herbs and the roasted lamb. Now, at this point, they give us something to do because the protection is not going to be automatic even in this land. But they had to go and they had to put the blood on the doorpost. Verse 7. And the lamb was to be a one-year-old male because he was taking the place of Israel's firstborn male. Egypt would lose a male. The lamb substitute for a person who would have died in the plague. And it's a Passover. Verse 11. No one to leave the house till morning. Verse 22, not automatic. Regardless, don't leave. It's only the blood that made the difference in the distinction. You know, if you hear me pray, I ask someone, where did this come from with what I'm saying? And no one could answer. But this is your passage. It's the blood that stands between me and the death angel. You've got to have that inside of you. That it's the blood that stands between you and the death angel. Between us and the destroyer. Verse 23. And then it says, teach it to your children. Verse 24, 27. It's continual. People go, I wonder why this happened. Then I say, are you teaching it? Are you telling them it's the blood of Jesus Christ that stands between you and the death angel? Do they know that? Do they understand it? 
Is that how they live their life? Under the blood? With the blood on the doorposts of their heart? With their heart circumcised? You shall keep it till the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it together at twilight, their lamb. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it in the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. Are your children applying the blood? And have you taught them? Is that how you raised them? We're upset about people being killed by the enemy, but it may be right here that the problem is that we haven't taught them the distinction between them and the enemy, between them and the unbeliever, between them and the Egyptian, between them and those that understand God. Because it tells us in Exodus 12, 7 and 12 through 13 that it causes it to pass over. It's where we get the word Passover. In verse 7, what made the difference of who the death angel attacked? The death angel, but not all. What made the difference? There was the death angel. He was there with the children of Israel. But there was a difference. Some were spared. Were they better people? No? Well, if they were judging by future sins of this group, I mean, once they crossed the Red Sea and they built a golden calf and they had an orgy and ran out of food and water and cursed, and now I don't think it was just on future sins. So people that are counting on the fact of, well, I've lived better than most people, that's not what protects you. It wasn't their morality that made the difference. It reminds me of Zippy. Zippy was in her 90s. We went to see Zippy over in Israel. And her biggest concern was, don't look at my hair. And I don't have my wig on. And I mean, being with Zippy was just like her name says. I mean, it was a barrel of entertainment with Zippy. I mean, she is one of the most colorful people you will ever meet. But I won't ever forget what was on her office door in Israel. Zippy owned, I think, the entire retirement center as we looked out the window. I think her husband built it. But on her door, she had a poster that said, I wish you could hire someone to die for you. The rich would gladly pay for someone to die in their place. At 90 years old, that's what she was thinking. Me of Zippy. I wish I could hire someone to die for me. I mean, I can hire everything else. The only one thing that makes a difference, the blood of the Lamb. There could have been a distinction among Hebrews like there was between Christians. This was not a blanket immunity. The blood had to be applied. They had to stay under it. You know, we don't have any examples given of where a kid just shot out there and, and ran out and did something when the death angel came over. It sounded like everybody took it seriously and stayed under the protection that night. You know, the plagues got their attention. They had heard about the nine other ones, and they took heed. They were given a secure place under the blood, the secret place. We can take it with us, bring peace in. We can bring neighbors into our safety. On this earth, we're in enemy territory. We live in enemy territory those who sacrificed a lamb and those who didn't. Those who applied the blood and those who didn't. Those who stayed under and inside and those who didn't. Those who stayed inside and those who didn't under the blood. When the destroyer passes, stay inside. For only one thing could make the difference. And that was the blood of the lamb. So it moves into executed judgment here. It says, For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike down all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. The judgment was against the gods. Same as today. The judgment coming on the earth is against the gods. This would not be a night as an Egyptian to cling on to your god. The blood shall be a sign for you on the house where you live. And when I see the blood, 
When I see the blood, I will pass over. And no plague will befall you. Or come near your tent. <laughs> and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. You know, Hebrews has a hall of fame. And it tells what everybody did by faith. It's the hall of fame of faith. So when you look through the Bible, it was interesting to see the writer of Hebrews tell you, this person did this by faith, by faith, by faith. And all the way down, it tells you by faith. What did Moses do by faith? He could name so many things. I've always enjoyed looking at what I think the person did by faith to what the book of Hebrews decided to celebrate. But in that Hall of Famer chapter, it said by faith, Moses left Egypt behind. Not being afraid of the king's anger. For Moses persevered as one who sees him which is invisible. Because of his faith, Moses left Egypt. Moses had seen the invisible God and wasn't afraid of the king's anger. It was faith that made Moses leave Egypt without being afraid of the anger. Whose anger have you afraid of? There's only one thing for your fear. Out of all that the writer could have said of Moses' faith, he talks about it of not being afraid of the anger. Not intimidated. The world tries to intimidate you. Their voice of authority. This is called faith when you're not afraid of the anger. It executed the judgment on the gods. And Moses left Egypt behind. All those officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me, saying, Go, you and all the people who follow you, and that I will leave. Then Moses was hot with anger, and he left Pharaoh. Exodus 11.8 don't you like this? Moses stands up to the heat of Pharaoh who no one else could stand up to and he says, all these officials of yours will come to me and bow down before me. And they will say, go and may your people follow you. After that I'll leave. Then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. He didn't listen to Pharaoh's anger. He got angry himself. What was meant to soften Pharaoh hardened him. Plagues would penetrate the palace some. The writer of Hebrews is not finished with Moses. And this is important for this week. By faith, Moses kept the Passover and the application of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. Protection distinctions. When Moses delivered the message to Pharaoh, he left in great anger because of his stubbornness. Because of Pharaoh's stubbornness, his hard-headedness, his hard-heartedness, his demands. You cannot leave. Pharaoh saw himself as a god. Each plague got more personal. He had to continuously walk back on his demands, Pharaoh. Pharaoh was unstable. Eventually he would drive them away. He was so unstable that eventually he would drive them away, but double-minded enough to chase them down after he drove them away. Pharaoh didn't know what to do. Pharaoh didn't do what was commanded by Moses and Aaron. But, it says, then all the sons of Israel did, so they did just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. So you see the contrast here that Pharaoh didn't do what Moses and Aaron told him to do, but the sons of Israel did everything that Moses and Aaron commanded them to do. It's a good day in the books of Israel. They did what Moses and Aaron said. They did what they said. And they got their freedom. Sometimes all it takes is obeying the right voice and you'll get free from slavery. 
You see the distinction between those who obeyed and those who didn't. Passover is a time of distinction. All had to die. Was there a death in every household? How would you answer that? Was there a death in every household? Was there a death in every household in Egypt? I'm talking about all of them. It's not a trick question. Was there a death in every household? What about the children of Israel? Actually, yes. If the death angel passed over and didn't take the firstborn, it was because there already had been a death there. The lamb. And that's the same with you. You've got to already have realized there's a death for me. It's called someone in exchange for my life. The innocent for the guilty. Technically, there was a death in every household. You just choose whether it's the death that God provided, the ram in the thicket, or if it took it, the most dear thing to your life. So, we move forward on this glorious day to the blood line is your distinction. We move it forward to Revelation. And I'm going to say the word line is your distinction. For the book of the end of times gives you a distinction. It says, since you have kept my word of perseverance, I will keep you from the hour of the trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. Revelation 3.10 The word of your perseverance. The tribulation is not for the believer. It's not for you. He will keep you from the hour of trial that's going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. That's who it's there to test. He's inviting you a distinction and he's telling you very clearly the word of the perseverance. But alas, that's for another day. For we must celebrate the substitute. So, in a way, I'm going to say in closing, Zippy, you do have someone to take your place. You can pay for it. There's a lamb that you could take in. What is your line of distinction? Amen.